Well, praise God for that, Jeff, uh, wherever Jeff is at. Um, thank you so much for sharing your, your story. And friends, it's been so uh, encouraging to to hear the, these stories. Um, it is not to make much of the, the person telling the story, but to make much of our our God and this, this series that we've been in since Easter called Rise. We're looking at the reality of the resurrection, not just what happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus came out of the tomb, though we celebrate that. And that's the basis for everything that we're doing even here today, because if there's no resurrection, then what we've been doing up until this point, including this time right now, like is a colossal waste of time. It's foolishness. It doesn't make any sense. But if the tomb is empty and the resurrection is real, then it changes everything and it's changing lives. And so I'm so thankful for those who've been willing to, to share some of their stories. And so I'm sure over the past few weeks, as we've heard some of these, there's commonality certainly, but there's also uniqueness to how God chooses to work. And sometimes it's even planting a seed through probably what are kind of some like, oh, that's kind of a, a cringy sort of question to ask the young kid, like, hey, if you die tonight, what's you're like, wait, I didn't know I was going to die tonight, right? Like, how, how do we process these things? And yet, God in his faithfulness, in his timing, in his ways, so that he gets all the glory, he continues to bring about new life. And so we're here to celebrate that reality today. So again, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for gathering this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this sanctuary. If you're new to Crosspoint or we've never been introduced, my name is Jamie. It's my joy and privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. I uh, was away last week, missed being with you guys, uh, was suffering for Jesus in some cooler temperatures in the mountains. Um, uh, but in all seriousness, really did miss getting to, to gather uh, with you all. And so thankful to those who carried on the, the, the service and uh, um, yeah, we're glad to be glad to be back. Um, and we are in this series called Rise, um, and it's a journey through First Thessalonians. This this letter where Paul writes to a, a church. Um, and so, what I want to encourage you to to do here in just a moment is to to get out a, a Bible um, because I want to read our text. We are this week and next week, and then we will wrap up uh, this series. All right. And so, we're in First Thessalonians chapter five, verses one through eleven. So again. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for, as I say, and I mentioned a moment ago, for bringing the church into this space, for those that are gathered for Crosspoint at home. Thank you for, for tuning in and being part of this wherever you are and for bringing the church into those spaces. And so uh, if you're able, if you would, please stand. I wanna read this morning's text. And I wanna, um, again, hopefully you have a Bible. You can also use that there's a few Bibles or you can go to uh, thisiscp.church and click uh, the thing that says sermon notes or you can scan the QR code, that'll bring that up. But let me go ahead and read this text and then we'll make our way through it. We are in the final chapter of First Thessalonians. So this week and next. And so here's God's word to us this morning, remembering that there is only one perfect and errant thing and it is God's word. And so what a gift that he's given to us. And so let's hear his word now. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, you're children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, they sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Verse 9. 
For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, that last line there in verse 11, Paul says, encourage one another. Like, therefore, in light of all that he's just written here in this chapter and really throughout the text, he's kind of driving this to a close. And he says, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. There's this call to make sure we're doing this and the ongoing need of it. And so what is so important that Paul would lay that out? Like, it is kind of cluing us into like, hey, let's pay close attention to verses one through 10 here because they have much to communicate to us, not only about the resurrection stories that have begun, but how to live that out. How are we to continue in this new creation, living out these resurrection stories? And there's a tension and this text is gonna help us wrestle through like, what does it look like in the here and now? There's a, a new, relatively new book called How to Inhabit Time uh, by somebody I've referenced before, James K.A. Smith, a philosophy professor up at Calvin University. And in this particular uh, book, one, late, kind of, I think it's the last chapter, uh, he begins speaking of uh, something I'm guessing many of you have gone through, all right? And it's this, this process of purchasing a home. All right, so if you've ever navigated that, you know like some of the highs of that and the joys, and you also know the like frustrations. You're just like, I don't know, man, I'm gonna camp for the rest of my life, right? Because it's just like, ah, this doesn't seem to be working out, all right? And so there's those highs and lows and all of that. And he was helping, him and his wife were helping their daughter who was newly married, all right? And so helping their daughter and their son-in-law kind of navigate that space um, sometime in the you know past year or two. And he said that, they would put offers in on homes and they would think that, all right, surely this is gonna you know, be accepted. And, and they kept getting rejection after rejection after rejection. And then there came that moment. Uh, and he said, finally, like their offer was accepted. And so there was like this great rejoicing. And then if you've ever navigated this, you know, oh, that doesn't mean like, cool, the offer was accepted and I will move in and like, you know, six hours from now. It's like, oh no, now there's this process, right? And so it's one thing to be like, cool, it's sold. But then like, where does that actually leave us? And as he's telling this story, it's not just to tell an interesting anecdote about his kids, but rather to press into what is a big theme actually in this book of First Thessalonians about how we're to actually live. And so he begins talking about this waiting process. Now, here's what he, he says, likening it, this kind of imagery of the home purchase. He describes it this way. He says, but then that vexing season of waiting, the offer is accepted. Your new reality has dawned, but you wait for the inspection. You wait for the assessment. Then that curious season of escrow in which, quote, your house is occupied by hangers-on who seem to be squatting in your future. And he says, you're buying now curtains, you're stockpiling paint swatches and already planning your first party, but you have to wait. You have to dwell, and this is a reference to the poet Auden, you have to dwell in what it calls the time being. The Christian life is like living in escrow. The creator has retaken possession, but we're waiting for closing. And friends, this is the space that you and I inhabit if we are followers of Jesus. If we go back to the opening of this book and one of the, the, very, the first sermon in this series, I mentioned this theme or this, this phrase that theologians like to use to describe it. It's a huge theme in the book of First Thessalonians. And it deals with this idea that like, 
Christ has taken possession, like he's victorious. This, this is his world. And yet we wait for that closing date where we can sort of fully move in and we live in this in-between time. And the theological term for that is the already and the not yet. The already is that Jesus has conquered Satan, sin and death. The tomb is empty. There's this new creation that's burst forth like right in the midst of this one. And so it's already, and we already are sons and daughters of the King. We already have an inheritance. We already have the righteousness of Christ. We already have justification. And yet, I don't think I have to convince you of this, the not yet part, there's brokenness, there's disease, there's relational strife and discord, there's poverty, there's injustice, there's all of these things in this world that we inhabit. And it's like, how do these coexist? Yes, Jesus has conquered, and yet there's this not yet part. Like we long for him to come back and to set everything right. We long for that closing day where we actually get to move in and dwell now in that space with God. And that's the promise here that we see throughout the scriptures. It's been highlighted over and over and over again in First Thessalonians and certainly in the text that we're in this morning. So it helps us wrestle with this. Like, how do we live in that waiting? between the time of an offer has been accepted, taken possession, and yet this closing date. And this text is going to help us with that. It's a continuation really of what we began a couple of weeks ago, back at the end of chapter four, verse 13, Paul deals with this, what oftentimes is referred to sort of these end times themes, all right? Um, And we're gonna solve all of that this morning. There'll be no more questions, right? Um, No, the reality is there's a complexity to all of this. And Paul, is gonna state a couple of things at the outset. He's gonna speak of the problem actually that exists if we view this the wrong way. And then he's gonna invite us to remember and to see how to best prepare, how to live in this tension right now, all right? As we await the closing date, as we live in this already and this not yet, and how are we to operate as the church and what are we invited into? And then what ultimately is the provision that God makes to empower this whole thing. But first, we've got to look at the problem, all right? And so there's a problem that's laid out in the opening verses. If we look back over verses one to three, Paul starts it out by saying, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, he means his brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. When he uses that language or those words, times and the seasons, He's referring to the question I think we all want answered, right? It's like, when is this going to happen? But Paul says, hey, concerning the when, you're focused on the wrong thing. You are not called, you and I are not called to focus on the when, but rather there's a reality that this actually is going to take place. And though some details are given, there is a mystery about this. But the things of which we need ultimate clarity, the Bible is abundantly like over the top clear on the story that we're part of. And so he says, there's a problem. The problem is that people there were asking, like many of us ask, and it's a legitimate question and we can wonder about it. But the question of like, when he's like, whoa, let's not look to that. And he actually says, you have no need to have anything written to you not because they understood it perfectly, but he's like, hey, we, we've been over this. This is stuff that we, we've talked about. Um, and so he wants to make certain that they know, like, this is not the thing to focus on. In fact, Jesus himself, on more than one occasion, spoke of this reality. One of the occasions is in Mark chapter 13, and he says in verses 32 to 33, this is the words of Jesus here. 
But concerning that day or that hour or that season, right? Like when he talks about his return, no one knows. He's like, the angels don't know, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son. I mean, how astounding is that, that Jesus is like, I don't know, right? He's not just withholding the information. He's literally like, nor the son, but only the father. And then you see why Paul uses the language that he uses in the text we just read? It's borrowing straight from Jesus. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And so he's laying out a helpful reminder. Let's not get caught up in all the details. There's a, there's a when to this that we can't possibly know. Angels don't know it. Jesus doesn't know it. You know, if you are like, hey, I'm gonna figure that, that out, you're wrong, right? If you find those people on the internet, right? You just, you're Googling a bunch of stuff. There are gonna be people that are like, I know the time and the date. You know history though, right? There's been plenty of people down through the ages that said it's coming on this date and then it didn't happen. And so then they modified and they said, oh, sorry, I had it wrong by about 90 days. And then they changed it and they changed it again and they changed it. And those people have since died, right? Not because they made predictions. These are just things that have happened a long time ago. And it's like, oh, like no one knows. But Paul in his kindness as a good pastor is pressing this point. I'll keep pressing it in verses two to three. He says this, for you yourselves, are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So he's like, the Lord is coming. And so that phrase day of the Lord is something that would show up throughout the Old Testament. It is a loaded phrase. And with it could come great security. Like the Lord is coming back. He will be triumphant. And yet there also can be this sense where it strikes terror into the heart. Like, because it refers to judgment that the Lord is gonna come and he's going to set everything right. And what I want us to see and what Paul is doing out of love and God's word to us through his servant, Paul, this morning is, listen, if you're in Christ, there is a future that awaits you, though we don't know all the particulars of how it's all going to play out. He's writing this not to terrify them, but he's writing to bring comfort to them. He's writing to people that are going to face persecution. And he's saying to them, listen, I want you to know there's not a way that you have to live to try and like balance the scales. That would be terrifying. If I heard the day of the Lord is coming and it was up to me, like, have I done enough good to outweigh my bad? The reality is like, no, I'm a goner. Like there is no way I stand up next to a holy God. And so if you're bringing in this morning a sense of like, well, I'm here at church and I, I kind of have to perform, at least pretend really well. I have to act like I've got my stuff together. I need to balance these things out. That may be part of the upbringing and things that you've been, been taught. That is not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is about God's grace and how we can't make it on our own, but Jesus has done it. And so Paul says, listen, you yourselves are fully aware. There is a day of the Lord and it will come. It's guaranteed. And then he begins to describe it though in a couple of different ways. There's a couple images that he uses here. And it's meant for one to just give us some insight, but it's also meant particularly for those that don't know Christ, that they would see the urgency of this. He will come like a thief in the night. John Stott speaks of this in his commentary. And he's like, first, just see this, this image and then the image of labor pains, both speak of a suddenness. But, but the thief, all right, if we deal with that imagery first, a thief in the night, it's sudden and it's unexpected. Like if you've ever dealt with what is, you know, a very unfortunate 
scarring thing of somebody like breaking into your home or being robbed at some some level, right? Like my guess is you you did not get an email or a text that said, hey, about 3.43 this morning, I'm gonna be in your house, just letting you know, I'm gonna take a few things, no one will be harmed. Like no one gives you a heads up, right? I think of a few years ago and my my wife, you know, pulled into a parking lot to get our kids from swim practice and ran into the practice and came back out like six minutes later to find the van window smashed and her purse gone. It's like, there was no note prior to that that says, hey, just be on guard as you're in the swim parking lot, right? Like we don't get those things, it's, it's unexpected. And so Paul is saying, hey, we know this, right? So it's gonna be sudden, it's gonna be unexpected. And so the return of Jesus, it is coming. He doesn't even know the time. The angels don't know the time. We shouldn't spend time prognosticating about when it is. We should just know it is going to happen. There is gonna be a day of the Lord and those who are in Christ will get to be in his presence forever. And those that are not in Christ will literally then be in the place of away from the presence of God, which is what hell is. And Jesus is laying it out in his kindness saying, this is actually going to happen. And he continues and he says, verse three, Paul writes, while people are saying, and notice this, it's in quotes here. There is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them. Then as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. We'll come back to that second image here in just a moment. But that first part, there is peace and security. The fact that Paul puts these quotation marks around it is meant to signify something to us. And it's this, that this would have been a a phrase, language that would have been prevalent, prominent in that, that time, in that historical context that there were people that were constantly sort of shouting a narrative about peace and about this security, this prosperity. And more than likely, scholars believe this is a direct reference to what the Roman Empire in their propaganda machine that was constantly producing these phrases that people were meant to latch onto so that it would be kind of drilled into them, this Pax Romana, like the Romans bring peace. But it's not a peace like King Jesus brings out of meekness and gentleness and sacrificial love. It's a supposed peace that the Romans bring by what? Saying, well, you surrender to Caesar, you declare that Caesar is Lord. And if you're unwilling to do that, we'll simply kill you and we'll move on to the next town as we seek to bring them under the rule and reign of Caesar. Like that's the peace, that's the security that they're talking about, which was no peace at all. And so we can look at that and what Paul is doing here is saying, it's possible that there are friends and neighbors and family members that are buying into this narrative that there's peace and security in this world. And so he wants to drive home this point about a thief in the night or like a woman in labor pains so that we would feel the intensity of it, not to scare anybody, but but to rightly sort of orient us to this reality that Jesus is actually coming back. Now we could think of that and say, well, that's then. All right. And we don't have that sort of Roman empire propaganda machine that's saying peace and security, but I don't think we should move past it so quickly because what this functionally is doing, peace and security in our day is a belief that our secular culture communicates over and over and over again, that it is this world, it's what you can see, it's what you can taste, what you can touch, the things that your senses can observe. It's all here, this is all you have. And if you just get the right things in order, get a plan, get your career sorted out, your kids sorted out, get into the right schools, all right, 
earn the right amount of money, all right, save the right amount, plan for the future, all of that, then you and I, those are all good things, right? But if we're touting those and buying into the secular narrative that that's what this is, we've lost sight of the transcendence of God. Everything is hyper-focused on like right here, right now. Now the Bible and 1 Thessalonians in particular speaks much to right here and right now, but it's not divorced from the transcendence of God. There is no peace and security apart from the work of Jesus. And so what Paul is laying out in kindness to us is saying, listen, friends, he's like, have you bought into the narrative that peace and security is possible right here? Like there has to come a point. I wanna to read to you this quote from Eugene Peterson, the late author and theologian. He speaks of it this way, not in a self-righteous posture towards the culture, but he's like, hey friends, there has to come a point where there's a disgust is the language he's gonna use. A disgust with the narratives that are pushed functionally being discipled, either being discipled by Jesus or the ways of the world. And he's like, there has to come a point where you feel it like kind of in your heart, in your gut, like this disgust, not because you think people are disgusting that are sharing this message, but more, you know, the brokenness of it. You're like, that's not the way to peace and security. Like something has to awaken in you. Hear these words from Eugene Peterson. He says, a person has to be thoroughly disgusted with the way things are to find the motivation to set out on the Christian way. As long as we think the next election might eliminate crime and establish justice, or another scientific breakthrough might save the environment, or another pay raise might push us over the edge of anxiety into a life of tranquility, we are not likely to risk the arduous uncertainties of the life of faith. A person has to get fed up with the ways of the world before he, before she, and listen to this line, acquires an appetite for the world of grace. Paul is writing to a group of people and he's saying, I'm not sure you have an appetite for the world of grace. But Jesus is laying before us something and he's, he's awakening us in, in us like these hungers that nothing in this world will satisfy. There's no peace and security apart from him. And so friends, do you and I know that, do we have that appetite for the world of grace? Because our only other option is a world of performance. It's a meritocracy where it's about the latest that you have done. And maybe you've accomplished big things in your life, but if you have, you already know this, this pressure, I'm sure, right? That with that then comes an expectation of like, you might get to do that for a certain period of time, but then it's like, well, when are you gonna beat that? And when are you gonna do more? And when are you gonna produce more? And more and more and more and on and on it goes. And it does not lead to peace or any sort of security. And so Paul's just saying, I'd love you enough to communicate to you and so that you can communicate to your friends, right? The people that you care about, like, the return of Jesus, the day of the Lord is coming and it will be sudden, all right, the thief and unexpected. But then he also says, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. So the, the idea here, what Paul is getting at, again, is suddenness, but it's that it's also unavoidable, right? And so his description here is simply to say, all right, a woman finds out that she is pregnant and she has a general idea as to the timeline of when this is going to be, but yet, all right, there is still a surprise of like, oh, like labor is now. And there are pains that though the woman might know is going to happen at some point, doesn't know the exact moment, but it is unavoidable. And so Paul is simply saying, listen, thief in the night, sudden and unexpected. And if you're like, well, 
it's unexpected, but not everybody gets robbed. Not everybody has a thief. It's like, okay. He's like, let me use another imagery. Like it is something that's unavoidable. Like this is going to happen. Jesus is going to return. There will be an actual judgment where those are invited into the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus and others that Jesus would say, away from me, I never knew you. And if for some reason in your mind, you're thinking it's like all those wicked, despicable people that he'll say that to that clearly have broken all the commandments, recognize as well that Jesus is speaking that to people that are highly religious, who have performed, they've seemingly done all the right things, but their heart has been far from God. They've been trying to save themselves and they end up outside, away from the presence of God is to be in hell. And so Paul is saying, listen, I want you to understand the problem. The problem is like, listen, don't focus on the dates. Be mindful of the fact that Jesus is coming back. And then he moves into verses four to six. He speaks to like, what's our preparation for this moment? How are we then to actually live? If we're not to focus and fixate on, on well, when is this going to happen? He begins to lay out a couple of things. And I put it before you this way, that he's calling the people and he's calling us to remember a couple of things. The first of which is to remember your reality. Remember what is true about you. Remember what is most true about you. Because it is possible to believe all the right things, say all the right things, and yet still live from a place of like, I don't know if I functionally am believing the gospel in whatever circumstance you're facing. And so Paul says in verse four, but you, my friends, you're not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief. He's like, it may surprise others, but it it won't be a surprise to you. Why? For you are all children of light. You're children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Not because you're amazing if you're in Christ on your own, but no, Jesus is the light of the world. I mean, there's this whole story about God bringing things from darkness and chaos and the light bursting forth. Go and read Genesis 1. Then go and read about the fact that Jesus is the one who identifies himself as the light of the world. And then we, as the people of God, are invited into this whole new reality. And we live what? As a city on a hill. We live shining the light of the gospel. The prophet Isaiah looked ahead and longed for a day that Paul, and by God's grace, we here this morning, if you're in Christ, know that this day has dawned. It's no longer just an aspirational hope, but it is our reality. Even if we still are waiting for the closing day, this is true for us. This is what Paul is trying to drive at. Remember your reality. The prophet Isaiah spoke and says, arise, shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Like it's a call to awaken from our slumber. Perhaps you've been kind of drifting off to, to sleep spiritually, right? In the, this place of like, yeah, I believe that, but have you been awakened to the reality of what is so true about you? What is fundamentally true that can never be taken away from you? He's like, arise, it's time to get out of bed. Shine for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. In verse three, and then nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. That is an astounding statement that the most powerful figures, leaders, nations, those who would be saying peace and prosperity and security will come to a point where they realize we don't actually have it. It's just been propaganda. It's nothing but lies, but there is a truth that is found 
And the kings show up, not to people who have it all together, but for those who, like Eugene Peterson said, have a hunger now for the grace of God. The hunger comes from a place of humility, a poverty of spirit. I am broken. I am messed up. I am foolish. Like, that's the characteristics of us as the church, not as people who have it all together. Like, if you're like, man, I just feel like a fool. I don't know if I measure up. Like, welcome. Welcome to church. That's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's building a people. He's taking people who understand their brokenness and then saying, guess what? You get to shine like a city on a hill, like the light of the gospel, not put it under like a covering, right? But to shine it, to radiate it, not just you individually, but also us collectively, like radiating out this light where it would say, nation shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. You want a vision for your life? You want about, about like how to prepare and be like living into this already and not yet time? This is what we get to put on display, not because we're doing it in our strength, but we are simply mirrors, like reflecting the glory of God. And then Paul continues and he says in verse six, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, they sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. So Paul understands, listen, you're children of light. Remember your identity. Remember what is true of you. The thief coming in the night, it's not gonna surprise you. Why? Because you live in the day. You're in the light. You saw him coming, you see him coming a mile away, right? Like you're like, cool. Like Jesus is coming. I'm gonna go, that's what we looked at a couple of weeks ago. I'm gonna go out and meet him and bring him back in. I'm so excited to see him because it means that it's closing day. Like literally we get to move into our new residence and we get to be with God forever. Like we're so excited about that day. There's no fear in that because Jesus has been judged and condemned in our place. There's no condemnation. What do we have to fear? Paul's like, you're children of light. And so he's saying, this is amazing. So let us keep awake. Now, here's the reality because of the not yet part that we live in, it's easy still to, to doze, to drift off, right? I want you to see this. I need to see this. I need to embrace this. I need you to embrace this. Like what we're called to as the church then is to notice, notice our brother and sister, not in a judgmental way, but like I need somebody when I'm kind of drifting, when there's that in essence sort of spiritually falling asleep, somebody to, to awaken me, to remind me of what is true. Like what we're doing right here really matters, not in a legalistic way, like you better be in church every Sunday, but in a way that is so important because it's reminding us, it's collectively us poking and prodding in the most beautiful way possible to be like, hey, wake up, this is what's true. All week long, you heard peace and security from all the false sources. And this is reminding you of what is ultimate, what your true reality is. And I need you to remind me of that. And we need to remind one another and the scriptures do this. And how, this isn't the only place we do that, but everything flows out from here. Like I love, like I absolutely love, like the thing, I mean, legitimately, right? Like I think about like, what did I miss last week? Like I enjoy teaching and doing that. Yeah, sure. All right. You may not have missed it. I, I do miss doing that from time to time. But listen, like what I really miss though, like I love, and I can't sing at all. You probably see me fidget with my mic because I want to make sure like double, triple, quadruple check. It is not on. You do not want it on when the singing is, on, is happening, right? And yet I love it. Why? Because you are helping awaken something in me to remind me of what is true. Because all week long, even in doing ministry, there's these lies of like, hey, 
I don't know that I really am functionally believing this and hearing the saints gathered together to sing praise to Jesus, a bunch of people that are hungering for the grace of God, imperfect, messed up, jacked up, don't have it all together, but just gathered together to sing praises to him. That is like, hey, wake up. The sun is shining, like arise. That's what we get to do together. And so he says this, like, keep awake. And he says, be sober, all right? And Paul is, what he's getting at there, he's like, yeah, like you take the image of drunkenness. Like you just, he's, he's saying like, there's, there should be a soberness about you where you see what's going on and you're not burying your head in the sand and being like, this is amazing, right? Like it's closing day when it's not. And yet you also don't get discouraged like, oh, life is just awful. You know, I guess we'll just wait around until Jesus come back. Like, no, there's, there's goodness about this life. But so what does it look like to be sober-minded? in the midst of hardship and difficulty and all of this to be anchored by what is true. So he says, remember like your reality and then remember your resources. Remember what you've been given. And Paul uses two particular images here. And it's a, it's a kind of a shortened version. If you've ever read through the book of Ephesians, you know that Paul speaks of put on the full armor of God, right? Remember, you may have that picture from like, you know, kids church or different things or VBS. And we tend to think of that even as individuals, like I'm gonna put this all on. It's written to a church and we can think about it individually, but it's also us as the whole. And Paul uses that imagery again in verse eight. And he says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on, he just mentions two pieces of the, it's this militaristic language. It's things that help defend, put on the breastplate that is of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And so that language there is, is helpful to be reminded that there really is spiritual attack. There is a real enemy that doesn't want you to believe what is true. And this text is calling us to become who we already are in Christ, to grow into that more and more. And that breastplate of faith and of love, like I need that, I need that to protect, protects my heart, right? Like you and I need that, we need to be that for one another this guarding of that. So we would remember what is true. And Jesus doesn't just say like, hey, remember this and then give us no resources. He's like, no, you have faith and love, a love that you'll experience from other people, the faith that he's given to you. And this breastplate is put upon us. And then he speaks of the helmet, which is the hope of salvation, protect our mind, protect the head, like all, all of that. And it's this familiar triad that Paul uses, faith, hope, and love. Remember at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, you know, all of these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And then Paul in this particular case likens faith and love together, not because he's like, yeah, you know what? I had that wrong. You know, the greatest of these is actually hope. It's, it's not that, but rather he does speak of hope less because this, this text right here, it's, it's about that future hope. And so he speaks of that. And so in this, friends, here's what I want to encourage us in. Like, these are the things that matter. How, how are we going to prepare for that thief or those, the, the labor pains? Like how, how do we prepare for that? Well, we remember the resources that we have. We remember who we actually are in Christ, we're children. And there's this opportunity then to cultivate together the virtues of faith, love, and of hope. Like imagine how winsome, how needed those things are in this world in which we live. The writer David Brooks, a few years ago in his book, On the Road to Character, um, he is, uh, I think he's a fantastic writer. He 
numerous times write some op-ed pieces for the New York Times and various things. And um, a few years ago, it was around 2015, I think that that book came out and some different articles he was was writing at the time. And he was using this imagery. And he was asking folks to consider as a question that kind of haunted him. It was a question that he realized he'd lived his whole life kind of in a peace and security, kind of one way to live. And best I can tell, he seems like somebody that has like been found by Jesus, um, that God is doing a work in, in his life. Um, and he asked this question, in essence, are you pursuing resume virtues or eulogy virtues? And it's a jarring, helpful sort of question because listen, like if I were to pass away, I mean, I will, but you know, if, if, if I, you know, proceed my, my wife and my children and they get up to, to say something at my funeral, they, they get up, like, I think I'd be a little bummed if they were like, well, Jamie Hart graduated from Wheaton College in 1998. He got a master's degree at Reformed Theological Seminary that took him a better part of six or seven years to complete a two-year program. It was fascinating. Um, uh, you know, he served as a youth pastor in Downers Grove, Illinois for two years, and then 10 years as a youth director at a church here in Orlando and planted a church. Like, I like all those things, but that'd be kind of sad, right? It was just like resume, but we spend so much time just like resume, resume look at what I've done. But the things that matter, like the eulogy of like faith, hope, and like, what about be characterized by that? And let's not just think hyper-individualistically, but also like collectively. What's the word about Crosspoint Church? Like, are we reflecting this faith, this hope, this love? Brooks says it this way. We all know that eulogy virtues are more important than the resume ones, but our culture and our educational system spend more time teaching the skills and strategies you need for career success than the qualities you need to radiate that sort of inner light. Many of us are clearer on how to build an external career than how to build inner character. But if you live for external achievement, years pass and the deepest parts of you go unexplored and unstructured. You lack a moral vocabulary. It is easy to slip into a self-satisfied moral mediocrity. You grade yourself on a forgiving curve. You figure as long as you are not obviously hurting anybody and people seem to, be, seem to like you, well, you must be okay. But you live with an unconscious boredom, separated from the deepest meaning of life and the highest moral joys, gradually, a humiliating gap opens between your actual self and your desired self, between you and those incandescent souls you sometimes meet. What would it look like individually and collectively, familially, right, to have these eulogy virtues? So how can we become people of faith, hope, love? This gets us into the last couple of verses. And again, the prophet Isaiah is helpful here because Paul likely isn't just pulling this out of thin air. At one hand, he's used to, you know, Roman centurions and he's used to seeing that. And so he's borrowing that imagery, but it's more than that. He's also borrowing Old Testament language that the prophet Isaiah spoke of one who would come, that the Lord himself would take up this sort of armor, that the Lord himself, it says in Isaiah 59, 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Friends, all of this and this call is made possible. The provision is all because of Jesus. This is Jesus, the one who is our warrior. He is our victor. He has conquered the de death. He has conquered the grave. He has conquered Satan. He has conquered our sin. He has paid for it all. And so what Paul does in these last couple of verses, look with me at verses nine to 10. He just speaks so powerfully of 
our reality, he says, for God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Like friends, you're not destined, if you're in Christ, for wrath. Why? Because the wrath has already been poured out. It's been poured out on Jesus. And what we're invited into now is this life. He says, whether we are awake or asleep, meaning like if we're awake when Jesus returns, we get to be with him. If we have died before he returns, we get to be with him. You and I get to live with him. There is a closing day that is coming and we will move into our new home together. I mean, this is what Jesus even right now about our preparation. He's preparing a home for you. He is getting it ready. And so in the midst of suffering and of difficulty, well, why does this stuff matter? Because we need a bigger vision of what we're ultimately called to in the midst of all the things that just in the hyper imminent world that we live in, where it's just about like, well, how do I have peace and security? Like, let's zoom out for a moment and let's see the transcendent God and how he's at work and what he's actually provided. I'll close with this, this story. Um, sadly, as many of you are aware, the passing of, of Tim Keller uh, a few weeks ago, and um, you know, I probably can't think of a, a theologian or pastor that I've read more of, studied more of, quoted more um, uh, than, than him. And in reading, I mean, I don't know, I'm probably into the hundreds of sermons that I've listened to or, or read of his and papers and books and reading one right, right now, all, all this stuff. But there's, there's an illustration that he loved to tell. Um, and he, it's funny, he'd be like, hey, I know I've used this illustration before. So I was encouraged to be like, oh yeah, we're all struggling for new material. So we always we'll revisit some things. Um, and, uh, and yet it was, it was a story I think he really loved to tell. And he says as much in one of the sermons on First Thessalonians. Um, and he speaks of this pastor that lived outside of Philadelphia, um, uh, kind of born in the late 1800s, kind of so early part of the 20th century, he's doing ministry. Um, and his name was Donald Gray Barnhouse. And Keller would love to tell this story um, because it drives so powerfully at like what Paul is saying here in this text, like this fresh reminder. And Donald Gray Barnhouse was this, this pastor, a young pastor at the time, and his wife had passed away and he had young children. And the story goes, they were either driving to the funeral service of his wife, their mother, um, or just returning from it. And they're on this kind of, country road, this two-lane road. And in particular, his youngest child, he's trying to, how do you explain that? How do you explain it to anybody, regardless of age, but like, how do you explain to a young child what has happened to them? And so there's this, this interaction and he's trying to minister to her in the midst of his own grief and his own, his own pain. Um, and he looks ahead and coming toward them is this, this large truck, whether, I don't know if it's a pickup truck or semi or, or, or whatever, right? But there's this truck coming towards them. And he asks the, the youngest child, He's like, hey, um, you see that truck coming? Like, yeah, all right. And do you, do you see the way the afternoon sun was positioned? There was this shadow that was cast on the road from the, from the truck. And he said to his little son or daughter, I don't know, um, do, you, do you see the shadow? Yes, dad, I see the, the shadow. And then he asked the child as they got closer and closer to the truck, would you rather be hit by the truck or by the shadow? And of course the child, even with a simplistic understanding responded, the shadow. And in that moment, here's the words that Donald Gray Barnhouse in his moment of, of grief and of his own suffering said to his, his child, he said this, because Jesus was hit by the truck of death, your mother only had to go through the shadow. Now, it doesn't mean that the shadow wasn't terrible. It doesn't mean that the shadow wasn't, wasn't painful, 
but he's driving at this truth of what Paul was saying, like God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation, right? Who died for us, whether we are awake or asleep, that we might live with him, that Jesus took the truck of the wrath of God that should have clobbered you and me, right? It should have taken us out and said it took him out so that all we have to pass through is the shadow. And yes, there's pain and difficulty in that, but that shadow will pass. That's why Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, like, oh, death, where is your sting? There's this taunting of death that the Christians can do, both holding this juxtaposition, this tension of life. It is grievous and it is sad, and yet it doesn't have the final say. There's a closing day that is coming, and Paul is saying, this is your true identity. Remember your reality. Remember your resources, and therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you do. So would we be a church that regularly encourages, taps on the shoulder and say, hey, do you remember? Are you awake to the reality of who you are? I'm gonna pray for us. After I pray, if you've got kids in elementary, you can go get them to bring them in the service. We are also, this is an Advent type text. It's Advent is about not only the first Advent, Christmas, but about the second coming of Jesus. And so the worship team is gonna lead us in a song that you're gonna be like, do they know it's, like June, right? Like this seems a little Christmassy Advent. That's on purpose, all right? And those of you are like, Christmas in the summer, you're gonna be very excited. But it's an Advent song about the coming of our kings. So we're gonna join in that. And if you're like, did they just forget what season it is? No, we know exactly what season it is. We're in this already and not yet. And we're gonna sing and long for the return of Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your abundant kindness and grace toward us. I thank you for this text. Thank you for the encouragement. I pray that we would build one another up, that we would encourage one another in love, in faith, in hope. Would you do something among us, God, not for our name or renown, but for the, the fame and the glory of Jesus. May more people come to have a confidence like to, they can legitimately long for the day of the Lord because we get to be with you forever. Jesus, thank you that you literally took the, the truck, like you, you were hit by that, the wrath of the Father that should have, should have taken us out. But thank you that you died in our place, that it's only the shadow that we have to deal with. So we give you praise for that. Be with us now, work for your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you would.